0: Welcome to the Real Python podcast. This is episode 114. Are you interested in a career in security using Python? Maybe you would like to stay ahead of potential vulnerabilities in your Python applications. This week on the show, James Pluger talks about Python information security, incident response, and forensics. James has been doing information security for over 15 years, working at some of the biggest companies, government agencies, and startups. He shares numerous Python resources to dive into detecting threats and improving your projects. We discuss ways to learn security topics and how to get involved in the community. And definitely make sure to check out the massive collection of links in the show notes this week. All right, let's get started. The real Python podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, James, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, nice to be here.
0: So you reached out to me via email and sent me this amazing email with like all these details about security stuff. You said you were a new listener of the show. And actually, I have a quick question about that.
1: How'd you find the show? I like podcasts. I love listening to them like in the car. And I just randomly happened upon it. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, welcome.
0: I I hope you're not having to listen to all (laughs) 109 of them or whatever it is
1: that's out. I've got a few in the backlog. Okay, good. All right,
0: hopefully you, you can pick and choose. You work in security, and I, I, I guess there's lots of terms for that. A lot of people like to use the word sort of cybersecurity or basically security research. But maybe we could talk about defining a lot of those things to start with, like kind of talk about roles and, and positions and jobs. And I think it's a kind of an amazing field, and it really has intersected with Python in a big way, and that's kind of what you were mentioning in your email. So maybe we can start there, like maybe talk a little bit about your background, and then we can dive into some different roles and then get into some specifics.
1: Perfect. Yeah, so security is an interesting thing. I think over the last, you know, 10, 15 years it's evolved. I mean, it's yeah. it's gotten huge. You know, it went from something where, you know, if you were to look at security 20 years ago, they pretty much categorized it as bugs and break fix type type of work. Whereas today, people understand, you know, like what's going on. You can exploit these things and and do all sorts of nasty things on on computers. Definitely in the news, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The one thing I will say is, you know, first and foremost, like I apologize if somebody uh, is listening and they've been, you know, harassed by security people. You, you know, there are some folks that get it and you'll never see those, those folks. Just recording this podcast, there's probably hundreds of security people that have touched all the different pieces of software, you know, and things like that. You probably never even thought about that from the browser, you know, to, to all the web services, things like that.
0: Yeah. And all the packages of software in between.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And there's folks that get it and, and folks that don't, you know, and, and we always uh, get frustrated when people get a bad taste of the security in their mouth because, you know, folks get harassed or, uh, you know, there's really dumb stuff going on. I've been doing security work for probably 15, 20 years at this point. You know, I've been around for a while. And it, it's amazing how many different focus areas there are and kind of bringing it back to python i mean i started using python probably like 2007 2008 somewhere around there like really consistently okay and it's been interesting like the security community really leverages it like in so many different ways um it's it's pretty cool can we talk just briefly just touch on reasons for that you know it's it's interesting. I, I think it was kind of a time and place type of thing. Okay. And ironically, it, you know, the way that Python two handled strings, it, it actually lended itself really well towards, you know, doing stuff. So like it, one of the big things if if you've ever migrated code from like two seven to two or two seven to three. Okay. The whole Unicode versus bytes and strings, that was actually kind of a really nice feature uh, for folks because on the security space, there's so many times where you're basically doing bit manipulations or or things like that. You're looking at a packet or something like that, and it really made it super easy to do that, either looking at files or things like that. Because the
0: the stuff was in a, a more stricter format as opposed to what's in Python 3?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So like, for example, um, let's say you, you know, had a character, you load the one byte, you could basically do bitwise operators really easily just on that string without having to like convert it and cast it as a byte and then recast it as a, you know, ASCII character or, or things like that. And so it, it was kind of interesting on that.
0: Okay. You could tell the intent of yeah. of uh, uh, strings a little easier than maybe what you would do
1: now? Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and the thing is, is you can still do that today. It's not like, you know, they've removed any of these features, but it, you just didn't have to like cast them as different, you know, character types and okay. things like that. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that like a lot of people really liked, you know, because before then, we would have to write C programs or do it in Perl and, you know, have these like giant scripts that basically did the same thing that we could do in like two lines in Python. Nice. So that that was like one of the things that spurred adoption. Okay. But I think, you know, a, a lot of the things is, somebody said Python's like pseudocode that actually runs. Right. Very readable. Yeah, exactly. And, and it works really well when it comes to security uh, type of work.
0: Cool. One of the things I was thinking about with that, is when you look at writing these things you mentioned before we started that there's processes that are much more based around sort of shallow stuff and then sort of deep stuff and i wonder about that sort of shallow stuff and those kinds of roles that could be in there where you're kind of needing to act kind of quickly Mm -hmm. is that another advantage that that you could kind of write it quickly and, and not need to compile it and, you know, try your things out kind of quickly? Is that part of the appeal also?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, you know, and we can probably dive into this as well, just kind of the different areas of security, uh, you know, but when we're doing an incident, like let's say somebody's uh, been compromised or there's some sort of hacking activity that's that's gone on. Okay. Being able to quickly... Massage data, look at things, you know, modify it, and like iterate really quick. Those are super important, you know. During those, yeah.
0: okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you want to be able to make sure you're headed down the right path quickly before you you hit, you know, have to hit like compile and all these other kinds of things. So the, the idea that you could kind of just stand up scripts and, and get going quick is probably crucial as far as timing.
1: Yep. Yeah, and it's it, it's interesting. Like on the security side, there's really kind of two main focus areas so you've okay you might have heard these teams terms before but you've got kind of a red team and a blue team and for those of you who aren't familiar it actually kind of comes from some old military like wargaming type of stuff where you know and this is you know probably a little dated now but you know back when the Soviet Union was around, they would have the red team, which represented, yeah. you know, the communists. And, you know, okay. if you're from the U.S., it was the bad guys.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. So we would be the blue team in the U.S. here. Yeah, and
1: then we would be the blue team, you know, on that. And, like, theoretically, you know, the good guys versus, you know, the bad guys. And it kind of spread into the security side of things. Really, there's two main focuses. You've got a offensive, where people are trying to write exploits find vulnerabilities, things like that. And you've got a defensive side where, you know, you're basically trying to defend somebody's network. You're trying to understand what's going on and block the attacks. And that's really, if you were to kind of categorize the different types of security work, it kind of fits into one of those two buckets. My career has mostly been focused on, you know, more of the defensive side of things. Okay. The the blue side, if you will. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's really interesting because there are so many different paths that folks can take. And and you touched on it a little bit before, like you can either go deep or you can go wide. And, you know, it's great for different types of personalities because the things are changing all the time. So if you're somebody that, you know, is like myself where I get bored uh, fairly easily, <laughs> yeah. you know yeah yeah there's so many different things that are going on in the security community all the time that you can always find something interesting and something that catches your eye that you can that you can kind of focus on. That's cool. Just a, a total aside
0: there's a I don't know if you play video games but there's a video game Halo. yep and there was a like a, a cartoon series based upon the the red versus the blue characters. That kind of dives into that, and that's something that made made me think of it. But yeah, totally. It's weird to to have the the last several months to think about the the red team in in different ways now, too. Yep. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Maybe we could talk about not only the idea of these sort of narrow and deep roles versus the sort of you know spread spread out kind of roles, but maybe we could talk about what are some of the positions and. Maybe we can name some of these things because I I feel like having not worked in it, I wouldn't even know like what you would apply for. Or, you know, what would the these things kind of look like in, in And I guess they might vary depending on the the industry or background.
1: Yeah. So uh, there's a couple like really common terms that you'll see. Um, so kind of the mixed side where it's kind of a combination of red team and blue team type of activity. There's a lot of AppSec engineering folks. So like one of the things that a lot of companies have, you know, if they're running a platform or something like that, they need folks to triage bugs that come in. A lot of folks run bug bounty programs where they basically pay people to submit security vulnerabilities and things like that so that, you know, they can proactively deal with that.
0: And that's to, to outside people to, to submit them, to, to find them. Exactly. And then the people inside the company that work on these teams are addressing those problems.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's two pretty big companies that are in that space. So there's Hacker One and BugCrowd. And basically the idea is you, you know, almost want to like crowdsource, you know, the vulnerability finding side of things. So you might pay bounties for people to find security holes in your in your product okay and it can be pretty lucrative honestly like there's folks that that's all they do and they're pulling down really good money because some of these things sure you might w- work on browser bug for like three or four months you know just trying to like find it and discover it and, and then test it and make it into something that works but some of those you might get paid a hundred grand yeah. you know for some of those bug bounty programs
0: that's pretty good for a few months yeah
1: yeah exactly
0: so the, the hacker one and, and the bug crowd yep. are those organizations that you you as the larger organization would contract
1: to? Yeah, you basically, so let's say, you know, you, you run you know, a website or something like that. You would sure. uh, create an account there and then you would basically say, I have a bug bounty program. Here are my terms. These are the things that are in scope and I'm going to pay people between let's say $1,000 for a low bug or $10,000 for a high. Okay, And then basically what happens is there's people that they look at all these bounty programs and they find things that are interesting to them. So a, a lot of times what will happen when you first join, you'll get a lot of influx because more eyeballs are on it. Yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting. You know, it's a lot cheaper than paying 50 people all the time because you only basically pay for the things that they actually find.
0: Right, yeah. So in a way, you're you're also testing a, a kind of across <laughs> the whole yep. front space of you know your application in that sense with all these other things that that they're not finding, which is great, which you know is confirming a lot of uh, security on that sense. Yep. Okay. You've said that you worked in in a variety of different roles and different industries. Maybe you could give us a little background on on that.
1: Yeah. So I've worked in a bunch of different places and a bunch of different roles. So I've been manager, I've been, uh, you know, individual contributor. I've I've done development work and I've done incident response work. And I've worked at startups, like 20-person startups that are really early. And then I've also even worked like in the government space, defense contracting and stuff like that. There's something for everyone in all these different places.
0: Do those organizations have really different approaches to security? It depends.
1: I I kind of bucket most organizations into, like, are they regulatory bound or are they, uh, like, technology and engineering focused? You you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess that uh, having worked in a law firm and then worked in banking, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm familiar with (laughs) following, you know, all the regulatory stuff and, and making sure that, People are paying attention to some of that. Yeah. I was uh, not exactly in that role, but I have a good friend who that literally was his role inside the bank was making sure everyone's <laughs> following regulations and so forth. He's a lawyer. Yeah. So it's that I, I can kind of see how that would drive. I mean, there's a, this whole like vendor management thing mm-hmm. that you would go through of like you know <laughs> confirming all these sort of stuff and you know getting all those reports from them. And then I think about like like a startup, the sort of um, you know building an MVP, you know, minimal viable product or whatever, and trying to stand that stuff up. And and then I wonder about where does security come in there? Like were you hired once the product was already standing up or were you hired like part way in?
1: So most of the security, you know, at startups, I, I hate to say it, most startups don't have a dedicated security person. You know, they're... It, sure. People are expensive and having somebody who is, a, <laughs> yeah. you know, contributing towards the the bottom line of the business is hard. Right. Most of the startups I've actually worked at were security adjacent or okay. security products themselves. Yeah. So, right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: it kind of goes back to the, I think what you started with sort of apologize. I'm sorry. I'm a security person. I know you hate <laughs> them. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that might be that person that they hire into a startup and saying, yeah. no, what are you trying to do? Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> And and there's, there's some awesome folks like, you know, people don't know this, but like there's tons of security people that literally all they do is they look and develop based on, you know, security vulnerability reports and, you know, things like that. So there's like dedicated, you know, positions that you're doing really impactful security work, but you're still an engineer, you know, and it's, And if anything, I would actually say, you know, I apologize again, you know, for being a security (laughs) person, but (laughs) you know, there's some of the best security people I know are some of the worst engineers, you know, and, Hmm. uh, it's kind of a, in what way, you know, there's this thing, you know, that people talk about sometimes and it's the hacker mindset, you know, and it's just getting stuff done, you know, in a quick way and, and, you know, to be honest, like most security people, you know, that are kind of from, you know, the same time period that that I got into it, we're all self-taught. Mm. There was no college courses, you know, for security work. There wasn't any... Back then you had to scream at people if you wanted to get them to fix cross-site scripting, you know, bugs uh, and, and things like that. Things have, they couldn't see they couldn't see the what, impact. What was gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. and and even things like you know, when we talk about C like buffer overflows and, and things like that, where you basically can control the, the code execution across everything you know, in that packet, they would look at that and go, well, that's a bug. You know, it's not something that's high priority to fix. And, you know, we'd be like, yeah, but they can do anything they want once they have control (laughs) of, you know, the execution flow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like, do you understand that they'll be in control?
1: (laughs) Yeah, And and I think like education, you know, it hasn't solved the problem, but it's certainly gotten people like, we don't have to have those fights anymore. (laughs) You know what I mean? Well, that's good. Yeah, how are you learning then? You know, it, it it's a lot by doing, you know. Okay. I, I would say my story is kind of unique, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it was a great way of doing it, or you know, that even some of the opportunities are are, are there today. But I feel like today there's even more opportunities for folks to get involved. I got into security, you mentioned games earlier. I used to play tons of games when I was younger, you know, when I was like 14, 15. And I used to play competitively on a lot of these games. And uh, one of the things that really bothered me was like all the hackers. So like Counter-Strike, things like that? Exactly, stuff like that. (laughs) And, And so one of the things that I started doing was like researching this stuff. And a lot of it was things like memory management and being able to inject into other processes and like modify their memory without them knowing. Wow. Things like that. And... One of the things that, and I know this probably sounds terrible and hopefully like nobody recognizes me that I did this to them, but I, I, <laughs> All right,
0: what, what was your, what was your handle? Back uh, then?
1: <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, but I would actually write cheats before summer, get them distributed out. And then I would send in kind of these anonymous tips, you know, to the punk busters. And there were some others, uh, you know, back in the day, like this is how you detect it. And I'd uh, get ever like tons of people banned right before summer, so that when I was off, oh wow, I could actually play games without a bunch of hackers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, nice, yeah. But you know, so that's kind of what I got into security on. From there, I worked at some tech companies, you know, that were in this like massive growth stage. It, I just learned more and more and more, you know, and that kind of led me down the path.
0: Were, were, was there like a community that you could reach out to to ask questions or were, were I'm going to make an assumption that's probably not good that a lot of security people would be like kind of private and introverted in a way that they may not want to share uh, or they may not want to share what they found out, you know.
1: It's really weird. Uh, the security community is probably one of the most, like, tight-knit communities that I've ever seen. Okay. And it's really hard to, like, kind of get in there. Yeah,
0: that's right. I, th- I would think that maybe. Yeah, kinda. like,
1: once you're Although in. There's
0: got to be trust. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Like, <laughs> okay. y- there's all sorts of, like, private conferences that you have to get invited to to, to attend and, okay. you know, things like that. But, like, once you get in there and you start meeting folks, and this is unfortunately with like COVID and stuff like that, it's kind of dampened that a little bit, but meeting people in person and being able to shake hands with somebody's, you know, that's one of the biggest things in the security side of things where it's like, I can see you, I understand you. And you know what I mean? Like you're a real person, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting. So like, if anyone's listening and they want to start getting into security, you know, w- one of the things that I would recommend is you know, figure out what interests you. You know, if you want to write code or you want to do vulnerability research, there's all these different projects that you can get involved in and with stuff being open source, there's a bunch of like awesome lists, you know, I'm sure everyone's probably heard of these, but on the security side of things, like there's so many different products and technologies out there that, you know, and I, I don't mean to throw shade at, you know, uh, uh, the community, but like, we're not engineers. Like we're doing this stuff because we have to, not because it's like what we're really good at. Like a lot of us don't have CS degrees and, uh, right. you know, uh, things like that.
0: I wonder if that helps in some ways that, that you look at problems in a different way that a computer scientist wouldn't.
1: You know, it can. I will say like some of the and and this is probably like why when security was like really starting to get focus, you know, I, I would say like in the early 2000s, it was so hard because before they were like, well, that's just a memory safety bug. You know what I mean? And we're like, yeah, but we can control the code execution and we can do whatever we want remotely you know would you have to
0: show them that would you have to go that extra step of like okay we'll stand it up and let me show it
1: a lot of times yeah, yeah.
0: okay
1: interesting and then then their eyes would open and even then though sometimes they'd be like well you know this runs as a nobody can uh, you know execute that application or or you know something mm-hmm. like that or you need these permissions and it's like well yeah but if i chain these three things together." then all of a sudden, I've got the keys to the kingdom. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to probably extrapolate your vision to, like, you're having to cross the boundary between the software developer and the computer science kind of background people and working really intensely (laughs) creating these tools and so forth, and you're on the outside trying to point out vulnerabilities and, and so forth. And number one, nobody really likes to have their stuff poked at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also just having to be able to communicate with them, you have to kind of like learn the the some of the terminology. I'm guessing a lot of times as a as a researcher, you may not be privy to the source code.
1: You know, so let's go back to the red team, blue team uh, side of things. So, so okay. in, in both the red team and the blue team, there's kind of these sub-specializations. And on the red team side of things, there's a couple different specializations. So one is what we call pen testing. You know, I'm sure folks yeah. have probably had pen testers sco- comb through their code and, and things like that. And there's different types of pen tests. So there's black box pen tests where you have no access to any of the source code or anything like that. Okay. And then, you know, there's other times where you're basically going through and doing code reviews. Um, and a lot of times they do different focus on things. And also I'll say there's a lot The ecosystem's changed. Like there's just like with linting and, you know, things like that. There's so many tools nowadays that can help with like code quality because at the end of the day, like security issues, vulnerability is just a software bug that, you know, is basically the software isn't correct and can be leveraged in, in some way. Then you get into like the exploitation side of things where you're actually using a vulnerability to do something bad. Okay. Most of the time when we talk about like security vulnerabilities, I mean, it's just bugs on that that allow some sort of like behavior that wasn't expected to occur.
0: Yeah, I think about uh, there's, I don't know, probably in the last two years of me doing this, I've talked about a handful of these. I would characterize them as automated sort of tools that can scan through your code. Sneak is one that I think of. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I heard about pretty early on when people were talking about distributing cloud code, Docker containers, and things like that, and stuff that you're going to put out there. That's one I can think of. I think Sentry's is another one. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of other services, this is like one of the additional components to it that it can kind of look for, if you will, known vulnerabilities in some ways. Obviously, people need to make those tools, so that that's part of a job. And that, that sounded like what you had said you were working in somewhat in a startup world, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then outside of that, <laughs> I would guess there'd be just new stuff all the time. Is that the case too?
1: Yeah. It, it's interesting. Cause like the attack landscape changes and, okay. uh, you know, the other thing is like as new features get introduced, it, you know, like sometimes entire classes of attacks just go away. Hmm. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, and this might not necessarily be Python-specific, but you think about memory corruption bugs. Okay. Really kind of the the reason why Go and Rust kind of became a thing. Mm -hmm. Entire classes of attacks, like memory corruption vulnerabilities and things like that, either they've been completely neutered where you can't even do it if you're using things correctly in the language, or they become extremely difficult to actually pull off um, in, in those languages.
0: So you're saying the shift to these new newer languages, mm-hmm. I, I don't know the age of Go, I know Rust is newer, mm-hmm. is moving beyond the programming directly in something like C, which maybe has a, a broader surface
1: of attack? Yeah. You know, on that stuff, they're getting rid of a lot of the attack surface, um, like okay. errors where people could introduce it. But even on the Python side of things, you know, like the type hinting yeah. and some of the tools that that you have where you can actually enforce those type hints, there are certain areas where you can actually like neutralize out certain types of attacks by doing that. And, and so like, you know, pulling it back to Python. Yeah. Even Python evolves and starts, you know, introducing things that can help the security problem.
0: That's, (laughs) I have my co-host Christopher, who he's not a fan of type hints. We kind of go back and forth about it in kind of a joking way. And I, I'm not religious one way or the other, but I do see the advantages of them and can kind of see I don't know, if you will, the writing on the wall. like This is a a direction you're headed, especially if your software has to talk with other software or do things like a lot of the stuff you're talking about is very much web-based and what is not connected in this sense. I mean, yes, there are tools that work entirely just on your own machine, but your machine is still connected to the web too. So I don't know, it's it's kind of interesting times. And so I I can see the advantages and it's cool to hear that, you know, that, that that's helping in a lot of ways that type hints can help to reduce the
1: <laughs> security attack surface, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's cool. It's good to know, you know, it's not like another little thing just to say, Hey, pay attention. You know, this is sort of happening. Yeah.
1: Security is interesting. It's, it's one of these things where like a little bit goes a long way. It's hard because you always have this, you know, and this is kind of the difference between people who get it and people who don't, you, Run up against velocity versus security, and sometimes velocity wins. Mm, what's that mean? So, like, you know, think about how quick it takes to develop software. Yeah. Um, if you're having to think about things and do type hints for you know every single thing, right, it might slow things down. Like, if you're only using this function internally, you know, maybe you know the type hint isn't going to give you that much advantage. But if you're writing like a, a you know REST API or something like that right knowing that this is this type type of data and being able to tell your uh, you know your code checker all the tools we discussed before uh, you know that it's expecting this type and then you know something gets passed to it that isn't that type you know all of a sudden you can help those out tremendously yeah and it goes back to like that regulated versus unregulated you know if security is a really big concern to to someone then they should do those things they should have you know, code coverage in their pipelines and, you know, things like that.
0: Yeah, that's been another theme, <laughs> uh, obviously, that we've been talking about is testing. Yeah. I wonder about that, like, as part of the the tools that you've created, as they mature, is that something you're adding as you go, adding tests to to the kind of Python tools that, that you work with?
1: So, it, you know, It's a lot easier to add it in the beginning. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Okay. So sort of
0: maybe test-driven development style?
1: I I don't do much test-driven development myself. Okay. Uh, Normally, what I do on on my personal projects, uh, you know, or or things like that, is I try to set up reasonable, you know, tests and, and things like that. The thing, though, is like, as you're writing the code and like doing these things, you know, it's a lot easier to do it as you're writing it and doing it all together than going... Oh, I'll retrofit it some other time. You know, I'll get to it.
0: Right. When are you going to find the time? When you're exactly. Maybe putting out other fires.
1: Exactly. So okay. I, I'll also say, in some ways, security people can sometimes be hypocrites because uh, you know.
0: <laughs> sure, I think all developers can be in. A yeah.
1: <laughs> do as I do, don't, exactly. Uh,
0: do as I say, don't as I right. do. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: but we're humans, you know. That's that's a problem. Yeah. If, if, Computers wrote code, it would probably be fairly correct, you know.
0: <laughs> so. I don't know. They're trying it.
1: <laughs> this these, uh, yeah, some of that stuff, is tools like, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, some of that stuff is. I wonder so if cool.
0: that, like, I wonder about that possibly propagating security uh, issues. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea that they've looked at all of these uh, existing repositories and then are kind of giving you suggestions. But I guess that's maybe one of the reasons you would have automated testing at the end of what you're doing. Yeah,
1: I mean, like, that's the thing, is a lot of those tools, they've put a lot of thought into that. And I would almost argue, you know, in some ways, some of that code that gets produced, you know, if it's done right, it can actually be quite a bit more secure than, than other things. I think... You know, I don't think we're there today. Okay. You know, and it's that little asterisk, you know, like if done right. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, but right. You know, I we'll see in five, ten years, you know, like how how all that stuff shakes up.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you had suggested in your email that we could maybe get into a couple of these things, definitely they could be like, like you said, like an entire episode. Mm-hmm. But maybe let's talk about these two sort of areas of incident response and and forensics. I think that it kind of relates to some of the stuff we've already been talking about a little bit, but, you know, what is incident response or IR?
1: Yeah, so incident response, if you imagine some sort of security incident taking place, let's say a really common thing is, hey, my account got taken over. You know, my email, uh, you know, uh, the password got reset. Okay, uh, somebody stole that, and then you know, basically, let's imagine this in in the context of you know a company or a corporation. Sure, that's pretty important. Like
0: a phishing attempt happened.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or even worse, I, I've seen where you know all of a sudden internal people from a legitimate email inside a company starts trying to like fish people or say, Hey, I need you to transfer, you know, $400,000, you know, to this account right now. Don't call me wow. to verify it. You know what I mean? But I, I just really need you to wire transfer this, you know? <laughs> and so like that'll yeah. kick off something that we typically would call an incident. And really an incident kind of goes through a, a couple different phases. So like, First phase, you're gonna triage it and figure out what's going on. Is this an actual legitimate security thing that that's that's going on? Do we need to engage and and you know, do we need to bring in consultants and do forensic work? Or can we do this in-house? What do we gotta do to basically almost just stop the bleeding? Really? Is there a like
0: flow chart of questions to go through? Or is it just something that you get comfortable in? in knowing
1: it really depends you know there there are people call these like playbooks um the yeah okay the thing is it's so dynamic you know and and having somebody with experience that understands it can be the difference between responding in an hour or having something that takes weeks to deal with uh okay a lot of times it just depends on what it is. Um, Like I've been at places where we've gotten notification from law enforcement agencies and they're like, Hey, we noticed you're communicating with this bad host. Like we really need you to look at this. You know what I mean? Oh wow. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And as an example, how did it get to them? (laughs) Was it reported
0: to them or they, they are looking at, Um, They're monitoring They're monitoring that stuff, yeah.
1: So so you can almost think of it like, you know, sometimes they might be doing a wiretap on something. Like a really common example of this would be, let's say you work, um, you know, at a big company and they're watching a criminal doing some of the work. Sometimes they will actually proactively engage victims uh, to basically let them know that they've been compromised. Okay. And it's something like, they don't do all the time because sometimes these are active cases and they can't, you know, tip the bad guys off or whatever. Right. But sometimes they've got trusted contacts at, you know, some of these companies or, or let's say it's they're in the government, they might do like an intergovernment, you know, notification or something like that. Okay. There's, there's all sorts of stuff on that.
0: This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another Real Python video course. It's titled Exploring HTTPS and cryptography in Python. The course is based on a real Python article by Logan Jones, and the instructor for the course is my frequent co-host, Christopher Trudeau. He takes you through the various factors that combine to keep communications over the internet safe. You'll see concrete examples of how a Python HTTPS application keeps information secure. In the course, you'll learn how to monitor and analyze network traffic, apply cryptography to keep data safe, Describe the core concepts of public key infrastructure, PKI. Create your own certificate authority. Build a Python HTTPS application. And identify common Python HTTPS warnings and errors. I think learning the fundamentals of HTTPS and cryptography in Python is a crucial skill for anyone interested in building applications for the web. And like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. All of our courses include a transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. It sounds like that can be a lot of different things that the person who's the researcher, if you will, the the responder (laughs) would need to do. What where does maybe python come in there like where where are they using and and how are they looking at the situation
1: yeah so the really nice thing about python is it is really easy for certain deployments uh to to push out okay like one of the things especially on the os10 side and i'm kind of I have a little bit of mixed feelings on it. Like on one hand, I'm kind of happy that they're removing the OS ten, sorry, Mac OS <laughs> or whatever. Yeah,
0: it keeps changing yeah, yeah, its name. Whatever, whatever the you know cur- <laughs> yeah. cur-
1: current iteration they're calling it. You know, they're removing, I think in the next version, you know, the built-in Python and then
0: Yeah, I won't have one. Yeah. yeah. I think my newest computer did not come with it at yeah.
1: all. And and so I'm I'm a little torn on that because you know, one of the nice things with incident response is you could on most Linux hosts, you're gonna have a Python interpreter there. And yes, it might be the system one, it might not be up to date, it might not be, you know, the most recent version, but you always know it'll be there. You know what I mean? Okay. And so if you write code based on that, a lot of times you can do like artifact collections. So for example, on on OS 10 hosts, let's say somebody has their laptop hacked you can write scripts that would basically pull all of those artifacts, you know, immediately in. Describe artifacts for me. So when I talk about artifacts, like forensic artifacts, these are any types of data. So it can be files, it can be uh, email bundles. Okay. Really good example is log files. Yeah, okay, sure. You'll want to pull those back, look at them, analyze them, stuff like that.
0: What processes were running at the time.
1: Exactly, yeah. Things like DNS caches are, are really good things. Um, so I can look at the local resolver cache and figure out what hosts have been resolved to, to what IPs. Okay. Uh, and sometimes that can help with investigations and things like that.
0: Okay, nice. I think that answers some of the questions on like somebody going in and, like you said, running these tools directly. Mm-hmm. Let's, <laughs> you didn't mention Windows or <laughs> newer Macs that maybe don't have Python how would you get your scripts running then? Would you maybe use other tools or would you say, I'm going to install Python for the moment on this thing. And, you know, like I I need to have, uh, I don't know if you need administered straight of access, any way you look at it.
1: There, there's some new packaging tools, um, but there's, and shoot, of course, now that I'm talking about it, it, it won't show up, but there's, well, you can send me links. Yeah, we'll we'll send links in the in the show notes, but okay. there's actually uh, some tools that you can basically package an entire interpreter along with a script, okay, and then it has a self-contained binary. So, like you know, on Windows, it would just have an EXE file, yeah, and then OS ten, it would just be a you know Mako. yeah.
0: There's like binary. a Py Installer is one um...
1: exactly that that's the one I've used before, okay, and, and it's worked really awesome, you know, for some of those things,
0: okay and it can get to the low level stuff it can run yeah. it, it can you know, find the logs and yeah exactly i mean and crawl across
1: the <laughs> directories yeah, and stuff yeah exactly and so i've used those before with really good success um, okay. you know it, it's really nice to be able to say like hey just run this thing and it basically grabs everything that you would want and ships it off the other thing there's some really cool tools Volatility is is one of the, the tools and, you know, it's an entire memory analysis framework uh, written in Python. Okay. It's awesome. So, like, one of the things you can do is basically do a snapshot of, you know, let's say you're on a Windows box and it's got malware running. You can take a snapshot of that entire memory okay. uh, of that host and then use volatility to slice and dice it. You look for patterns then with that? It, you can pull data out of it. So let's say, for example, you've got a malware and it's using an encrypted connection to a command and control server where it's, you know, sending commands and telling it to do certain things. Okay. You could use volatility to basically take a snapshot of that, the private key of that encryption key And then what you can do, uh, and I've done this a lot, is you use that to then write a parser. So you can go back and forensically analyze, like let's say you have a a full packet capture where you're basically doing a wiretap on the network. Do you use a tool like Wireshark for something like that? Or are there better tools than that? For most larger companies, they're going to be using something different. Wireshark's great for like an individual host. But when you're talking about like, you know, 10, 40 gig networks, you know, it's not really feasible. It's a bigger tool. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but the thing is, is like I've written tons of parsers where, you know, like I'll extract out using Python, you know, these private keys. And, you know, then I I write a decoder in Python and basically I can pull the packet capture. There's all sorts of really awesome libraries. And the really nice thing with Python, you know, which I think is why... A lot of people in the security community use it. If there are C tools, building Python bindings is super simple. And most of the common stuff already has Python bindings. And so you can use these like lower level tools, you know, like libpcap or or things like that. And they're really powerful, well-maintained, but then bring it up into a higher level language, you know, like Python. And it becomes really simple to to do a lot of work. Yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's
0: felt like it kind of crossed over like uh, is that still kind of an
1: incident response thing versus a forensic thing it can be i mean so the thing is is you know we do a lot of retroactive like assessments like what did we get right what did we get wrong the uh what is that called? post-mortems uh, (laughs) yeah yeah okay yeah and and one of the things is and this is kind of one of the areas that I focus on is we do a lot of monitoring after the fact, you know, like trying to figure out what a, a, you know, what an attacker is doing.
0: (laughs) Sorry, I I immediately had this idea of like a criminal coming back to the scene of the crime and I'm guessing that might be the case.
1: (laughs) It's exactly, you know, that that sort of thing. Yeah, so like, you know, one of the things is we might kick them out of a network, but we want to see what they're doing like in general so you know like one of the big things that that a lot of folks in the security side of the house do is they use python for monitoring things you know okay for example like set up monitors and dashboards to
0: see if think if you're being probed
1: yeah exactly or uh, uh another good example is so there's there's two other things if folks have heard of honeypots
0: yeah i wanted to go into that
1: <laughs> yeah so like the idea is i'm gonna pretend that I'm super vulnerable and I have like vulnerable software. There's some honeypots that have been written in Python that are really cool. Okay. And, you know, basically I'm just going to pretend that I'm vulnerable. I'm not really vulnerable because I'm not running that software. But when you try to exploit me, what I'm going to do is take that exploit code, I'm going to save it. And then, you know, basically pull down what you're doing
0: and then people are lazy, they probably
1: reuse a lot of stuff, oh, right? Oh, yeah, so. all the time. Okay. It's great. It's great for me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, and I I, I joke, uh, when when people do these, like, big block posts, they're basically doing the QA work for the malware authors, you know, like, by letting them know what they made a mistake on, you know? Uh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, it's really cool. Like, you know, on the honeypot side of things, you know, there's some really powerful ones that have been written in uh, Python. Uh, we'll. I'm sure we can share some show notes on that too.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I think it might be neat just to see what somebody might want to look at the code, just to see how something like that is structured.
1: Yeah, and it's it's super cool. There's like there's some that are like network based. There's some that are web based. Like the network based ones will basically emulate a service. You know, so it might pretend that it's like SMTP or something like that, and then try to pull all the data on there. Um, whereas like some of the more HTTP based ones, it might be like. Hey, I'm running WordPress. You know, <laughs> you know, it's got a oh giant sign that says "hack
0: me." <laughs> I've had so many nightmares. Just I have, I, I have some sites on a, a particular provider. I won't mention the name, yeah. but they're, that's what they're known for is like having lots of WordPress sites. And yep, yep. I, my sites are static. There's nothing happening with it. It's super boring. Yep. And I don't understand how this sort of shared hosting that people can put these WordPress like files all over my directory.
1: Yeah. Area. It's crazy.
0: And I'm like, I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, isn't that password protected and so forth? So something weird is going on there. And I was talking to like a more like cloud hosts that, you know, where you, truly are like setting up your own instance and it's no longer a shared thing which is probably where i need to go but yeah it was just like i've used this <laughs> company forever and but it's insane yeah. like and they just like drop like all these like commonly named
1: they just dump all of the you know, stuff yeah. basically yeah.
0: malicious files yeah Yeah, and (laughs) they're not going to get anything because, like, they're not set up, you know, from mine. But, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah, looking at log files is really funny sometimes. You're like, man, you're trying this thing that's, like, 10 years old. (laughs) Um, And then then the scary thing is...
0: Do they work, though, sometimes? That's
1: the scary thing is, like, then you're like, well, they wouldn't be trying it if it didn't actually, like, work sometimes. Mm. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's also really tough, like, from a security standpoint because you know every new vulnerability that comes out like it's another thing to throw on the fire yeah you're still having to worry about the vulnerability that came out 2 years ago like if people aren't patching and stuff like that so
0: is that where the automated tools can help you because they have that library
1: yeah of history it, especially with like the containerization side of things you know like a lot of folks are putting you know their apps in containers yeah yeah which is great because you know uh, you can have consistency. Um, the The problem is is like if you aren't rebuilding those on a consistent manner, right? Some of the software becomes really stale, you know. And
0: yeah, your literally you know requirements have like
1: yeah. pinned versions and things. Yep, exactly. Okay, and so things like you know, I, I love GitHub's like Dependabot. I know it annoys people sometimes, but like the fact that They can keep things updated and do like simple pull requests, is such an awesome thing. And then, especially with like some of the automated pipelines and things like that for builds and deploys, I I would say if we had these tools like 10, 15 years ago, it would have been so much nicer, you know, from a security standpoint.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. You've mentioned all these kind of cool potential places that someone could look at working in this industry and then i kind of wonder about like if they're interested in that like do you have suggestions like where they could learn some more of these skills like i know you kind of did the school of hard knocks of (laughs) literally like getting in the trenches and and learning and then kind of getting invited into you know kind of these circles to to learn a little bit more but I would guess there's still be a good place to maybe start now. Certain resources that you would say, hey, these are these are good places to begin looking.
1: So there are so many awesome resources these days uh, when it comes to security, and, and I think it's one of these things. Like first, figure out what interests you. If you want to do like finding vulnerabilities or, or things like that, look and see what bug bounty programs there are. Okay, there's a, a bunch of uh, vulnerable like you know, software things where you can go through and basically do testing on, like, super vulnerable software and write your own, you know, bugs. And it's basically almost like a capture-the-flag uh, type of thing where you, like, continue. It's it's like a game.
0: Very gamified.
1: Yeah. And, and it's really fun, though, because you're learning things. You're learning how to, like, exploit certain things or use them to, like, actually practically apply some of these security things.
0: Is that, like, a, a site or a service that you would pay for to... Check out
1: a lot of these things are free you know like they'll have either docker containers or you know vms that you can just run on your laptop okay and it's it's pretty cool the the other thing is there are so many uh, you know i would say if you look at any security related software project yeah it's probably like a 50 50 chance whether it's been written in python it's either going to be python c or go (laughs) you know like most of those okay People love when people are interested in the the projects. Like if somebody is wanting to get into security, the biggest thing that I could recommend anyone is just go talk to people. Okay. If there's a security conference, you know, go talk to somebody. If you work at a company where you're a developer or, you know, engineer, talk to your security people. Just show like that you're interested in what they have to say. Yeah. They're more than happy to open up. I just think, you know, a lot of times, Folks, they're they're only dealing with what's going on at that particular moment. So people are sometimes busy, but you know, if people are interested, we love to help to help folks. You know,
0: that's cool. You had mentioned, and I will include a lot of these libraries that you you shared with me. Mm-hmm. Um, these will be pretty massive show notes. So please come check them out. <laughs> James has put a lot of work into it and I'm going to add as much as I can to it to help you get an idea of some of these things to kind of work with. What I was wondering about was you mentioned all these packages and tools and kind of knowing some of these people that are creating them and so forth. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's, I know it, took a little bit to get into that community but that's one of the things i really love about python and i've said it a ton of times is just the community is generally positive and and friendly and interested in people getting involved in it and sharing resources and so forth and i I wonder about that for like the package and tool creators in the same way like if somebody goes and looks at some of these projects and maybe they want to get involved in them you feel like that that they're open to that
1: I feel like the people that are kind of uh for lack of a better uh descriptor, like very, you know, get off my lawn uh types of folks, uh-huh. they don't do open source releases. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? All right. <laughs> okay, sure. Um it, and and honestly like their lawn lo- their lawn is not listed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um All right. you know, and the thing is is like it's all about the approach, and you know the other thing. You know, face to face interactions at like security conferences. Yeah, if a developer came up to me and introduced themselves and said, "Hey, I you know write Python code, and like these are some of the things that I'm interested in. Could you introduce me to folks? Like, I'm new to this community. Yeah, people are pretty open. You know, on that. That's cool. Yeah, I mean. They might be a little standoffish first, but like once you have a beer or two or you know, just are hanging out and having a chat. Yeah. They they tend to open up. And and that's where like sometimes the face to face is actually even better than, you know, doing the stuff online.
0: Are there conferences coming up that that you can name?
1: Yeah, I mean like Black Hat, DEF CON are some of the biggest ones that you'll always hear about. But there's also TCC out in Europe is is a great one. And there's also like tons of local, you know, security conferences. So Are there like
0: meetup groups like I think of that for Python? Yeah, there's
1: tons of meetups. And and honestly, like, you know, if you go to one of those and you're like, I'm an engineer and I like security, are there any interesting projects? I'm interested, yeah you're you would probably have to you know push people away you know on uh, stuff like that so
0: you're in phoenix like are there ones locally in arizona there
1: yeah so there's actually a kind of a little bit of a shout out but there's a conference called cactus con okay and i don't remember when it is scheduled to go on i i want to say like you know, November or December or something like that. Okay. Uh, Sometime in, in the fall. Yeah. Like not during the burning months. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. It's not super fun to visit Arizona. We talked about that earlier. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're up north. <laughs> yeah. But,
1: but there's also, uh, there's a, a thing called security B sides as well. And they've got a bunch of local ones, you know, across the world. There's, there's all over, uh, you know, some of these meetups and, and things like that. And we'll, we'll include some links as well.
0: One of the fun things that happened with some of the meetups over the last year or two has been them being virtual and I wonder if that might be something where if you're located somewhere and there's not something happening physically around you that you might be able to find like a remote one that
1: you can kind of check out. Yeah, there there are some remote ones. I think the security community is weird in some ways. Like they're very like it's it's hard to get into, but once you're in, you know, like it's the most welcoming you know place ever okay cool. um, I, I I love everyone there, um, but sometimes like it's that face-to-face connection that is important, you know for folks,
0: yeah, yeah, you mentioned that earlier. yeah, building that trust
1: yeah and and it's one of these things like you know I think part of the problem is we see all the bad stuff that happens online, so it's really hard to trust anyone that isn't like <laughs> yeah. directly in front of you. <laughs> you know what I mean yeah okay, that makes sense. We have trust
0: issues. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Uh, Yeah, exactly. I wonder why that happens, right? (laughs) That's funny. Shields up. (laughs) Yep, yep. Okay. Hey, well, I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. And the first one is, what's something you're excited about in the world of Python right now?
1: Uh, So, uh, you know, first things first, like all the linters that are... Okay. Uh, I, I know this is kind of geeky. Have a favorite? I've been playing around with Black recently. It's pretty cool. Okay. Many, many years ago, uh, I kind of started doing the linting stuff. And I, I think a lot of people, you know, have the same types of experiences. But, you know, it would just cause all sorts of problems with your merge histories and stuff like that.
0: Right. Okay lots of changes it, at once. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Or or uh worse like somebody was running something with slightly different settings, you know, and then it would just be, you know, ping-ponging back and forth, but Okay. You know, I think like some of the tools uh, on that side and then also like me being a security geek, just all the stuff that is doing like automated static analysis and, you know, things like that. There are so many cool things that are in that area that that it's really interesting to watch. The lexing and parsing stuff is just really interesting to me
0: okay so like is it even move into the natural language kind of area or is it
1: uh, kind of more, more just like pattern recognition okay um, yeah, it's, I, yeah i guess it would be yeah. different
0: tools can you name a tool yeah
1: there's a couple of custom ones uh, that haven't been like open source that I've, I've played with, um, okay. you know, but they're all written in Python and, you know, pretty cool, but I, I think there's a few and I don't know if they've been released yet, but okay, really, really cool stuff. All right. Well, if we find one, we can, yeah. we can toss it in there. Yeah, there. There are some open source ones though. Um, nice. We'll, we'll toss it in the notes. Okay. <laughs>
0: what do you want to learn next? And this doesn't have to be Python or programming specific.
1: You know, I don't mean to sound like a really, you know, old person that, you know, walked up the hill both ways, but <laughs>
0: okay.
1: so, so some of the uh, newer async stuff in, okay. in Python, you know, like most of the things that I've, I've done in Python have all been like very synchronous. Like, you know, it's serial. You must do this before this. Yeah. Yeah. And. I, I've always been the point where, like, when it needs to scale, then, you know, we either break it out into different processes or just shard it across like massive compute nodes. Some of the async stuff, you know, is really neat to me. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's save you some time. Yeah, exactly. And also, specifically, like, on the website of things, there's lots of really cool stuff in there. So, like, I want to get much more deep into that. And especially with some of the stuff that's recently come out with, uh, like some of the language-specific things for speed up on on Python, you know, I think they're leveraging a lot of that internally. It's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm doing a story on it. The beta release, the feature freeze, they've kind of given you an idea of like what what things have been sped up in the language in different areas. It's
1: ridiculous. It's going to be some cool. Of those. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I guess the big thing is just like understanding how it, uh, you know, like on the low level side, the implementation details is is more of what I'm wanting to learn.
0: Yeah, cool. We have a recent tutorial that I liked a lot that that just got turned into a video course. It was a, basically a site connectivity checker. And you kind of set it up initially just to kind of like, are these sites up? And you're using sort of standard tools. But at the end of it, you look at, if you want, you can, in the command line interface, just throw a flag that will make it run async. And it's pretty cool to measure the difference between the two and then look at how the code changes between the two. You get a real good view of something beyond just like the you know common examples in a lot of tutorials trying to teach you async is just to to throw like a a delay
1: send a web request (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah or
0: something yeah and so this one was kind of neat and then it was you could do like a file text file that would have like a list of all these different sites that you wanted to check and it was cool because it would actually have to bounce around depending on what it was waiting on and so forth it was it was a neat example and very cool. Yeah. So where can people find out more about what you do?
1: You know, I'm I'm a little private. Okay. I, I think if folks want to hit me up, you can email me. I'm jp at uh, sheeple.us. Okay. And then I'm also a Twitter, but I'm not very active. Uh, you know, uh, just J Plugger, uh on, on that. So J-P-L-E-G-E-R. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Well, James, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to talk to you.
1: It's been awesome. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we'll have you come back and we'll dive deeper into one of these subjects.
1: <laughs> awesome. Thank you.
0: I want to thank James Pleger for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.